of my father and his egg, and the fact that he made the world's largest jeweled egg. I suppose the passion and interest in that came first. The Kaczynski family business is something that I grew up with. There were several dentists um, whose jobs were literally just to pull out gold teeth. Nobody talks about Pharaoh's pants very often, but they're there. Some other sources, which again are all kind of murky, hold that La Pellegrina was not actually discovered until the 1570s, so it could not possibly have been right. the pearl that Philip gave to Mary. Welcome to History Gems, where today we're going to be talking about all things Jane Austen. Joining me today is Sophie Reynolds, the Collections and Interpretation Manager at the beautiful Jane Austen's House in Chawton, Hampshire. Jane Austen's House is an accredited and independent museum set in the house where Jane Austen lived for the last eight years of her life. In this charming country cottage, Jane Austen wrote and edited her six beloved novels. It is the most treasured Austen site in the world. She lives there for eight years and they are incredibly productive. As soon as she gets there, really, she gets out all her old manuscripts. Full draft, really, of um, what's to become Sense and Sensibility, what's to become Pride and Prejudice. There's a local woman who lives in Alton, which is the town about a mile away from Jordan. Um, and she walks into Jordan and she knows that the house is Jane Austen's house and she's a big fan of Jane Austen. And she looks at the house, you know, on her walks and she thinks, oh God, it's such a shame that the house is sort of, you know, not in not in great shape and nobody cares about it. Nobody knows or cares that it was Jane Austen's house. So she decides to do something about it. It's 1940, so it's not the best time. You know, there's a war on. It, but she decides to set up the Jane Austen Society. Sophie is responsible for looking after the collection, for the house itself, and for the way in which the house is interpreted and explained. The stories we tell about our objects, its history, and Jane Austen herself. Welcome to History Gems, Sophie, and it is a huge pleasure to be chatting to you today, especially as we're going to be talking about one of my favourite ever subjects, or uh, favourite ever historical figures, I should say, which is, of course, Jane Austen. Yeah, no, thank you so much for having me, Nicola. It's really exciting to be here. Can we just kick off by talking a bit about Jane Austen? Because I think the name will be recognisable probably to everyone. And she is, of course, now well recognised as being one of Britain's most famous novelists. But can we just start by talking a little bit about her? And perhaps you could just tell us a bit about who she was and where she came from and you know how she came to be so important, I guess. Of course. Well, it's a really fascinating story in so many ways. Um, in many ways, she ought not to be famous at all. I mean, in her lifetime, she wasn't. She was born in 1775. She was born into a big family in a tiny, tiny village of Steventon in Hampshire. Her father was the, the local rector and she had um, seven, uh, well, six brothers and a sister. They were a big family. Um, and, you know, they they were she was always creative from a very young age. Her whole family actually were. It's rather remarkable. They were all sort of busy writing and drawing and um, acting as children. So they were really sort of creative and and busy and they created their own sort of amusements and things like that. But they were in a very, very rural location. So they weren't, you know, th there, was no, there was no idea about sort of fame, I think, at that age. Um, but Jane Austen started writing stories when she was a very young 
girl when she was around 11 and she wrote um, all sorts of stories as a teenager, really extraordinary really extraordinary stories actually I would recommend everyone to have a look at those because they're they're quite different to her adult novels they're really quite shocking in lots of ways um they're full of girls behaving badly it's really fun oh. um so as she grew up she then she started as she matured she started writing first drafts of what we now know as her adult novels then when she was about 25 her father very suddenly retired quite quite abruptly and moved to Bath with his wife and um, his two daughters, Jane and Cassandra. And at that point, I mean, there's a lot of debate about this, but it's thought that Jane was very unhappy to leave her childhood home. They moved to Bath, which was very, very different. It was a kind of a, a sort of luxurious spa resort, but it wasn't quite as fashionable anymore as it had been. So she's moving in a very sort of different society, very busy, very social, lots of balls and parties. She's quite a party girl, actually. She loves going to balls. She loves having a drink. She loves flirting. She's very sort of out there. She's, I think she's good fun as a young young woman. Uh, and then um, she doesn't write very much while she's in Bath. Um, she probably doesn't really have time, but she does write The Watsons, which is just sort of a fragment. The first few chapters survive. It's very different to her earlier works. Then um, her father dies. They essentially don't have very much money anymore. They move lodgings. They move, they basically downgrade. They live in different houses, it sort of gets worse and worse. And they end up moving to Southampton, which is significantly cheaper. They live there for a while. Then in 1809, eventually, her elder brother, Edward, who by a complete stroke of luck has come into a huge fortune from a distant relative, so he's inherited masses. He's much, much richer than Mr. Darcy. Um, he he gives them a house, basically. He sees that they are, well, about time too, he, but he recognises that his mother and his two sisters are really in, in quite dire straits. So he gives them a house on one of his estates, which is now Jane Austen's house in Chawton, the museum where, um, where I work. Um, and she moves back to Hampshire. And she lives there for eight years and they are incredibly productive. As soon as she gets there, really, um, she gets out all her old manuscripts, none of which have been published, of course, by this stage. But she does have a full full draft, really, of um, what's to become Sense and Sensibility, what's to become Pride and Prejudice, what's to become Northanger Abbey. Those have all essentially been written. She does get them out and rewrite them, redraft them, bring them up to date. She's very aware of sort of the fashions of the time and you know what people are reading what people are talking about what people are wearing and what they're eating and what times they're eating all of those things so she brings them all up to date she gets sense and sensibility published then she gets pride and prejudice published she's really on a roll um and but what's so tragic is she only has eight years in Jordan and they are incredibly happy years she's starting to be successful pride and prejudice is is extremely successful. Um, so whilst none of her novels are published with her name on during her lifetime, they're always published anonymously, she does enjoy success. And, and I think she really enjoys the kind of sort of secret side of that. She really enjoys um, talking to people who don't know that she's the author of a novel and and then sort of coming away and gloating about how they didn't know that she was, you know, she was really the author. Um, so uh, she goes on to have Mansfield Park published, Emma, which is actually published um, by permission. It's dedicated to the Prince Regent. For, for that, read, he requires her to, <laughs> to dedicate it to him. She actually doesn't approve of him at all, but she knows, she knows what she has to do, so she dedicates it to him. 
Um, and then she continues writing. Um, she writes Persuasion, which is her last novel, her most mature novel. She starts writing another one, which is um, she calls The Brothers, but is to become Sanderton. And then, this is so tragic, at age 41, she dies. Um, and it's not known exactly exactly what she dies of. There are different theories. It was probably some kind of cancer. Um, she actually moves to Winchester a couple of months before her death to be closer to her doctor in the hope that that will help, that he can cure her. Um, they live in lodgings just, just outside um, the precinct of Winchester Cathedral, which she can see from her window. And that's where she's buried in, in 1817. Um, her sister Cassandra is with her to the last. They're incredibly close as sisters. Um, but but Jane Austen dies. And at that point, she has never been she's never been named as an author. Um, her gravestone, actually, in Winchester Cathedral doesn't mention her writings at all. It, it simply talks about her as a, you know, a, a wonderful sister and, a, a you know, a religious woman doesn't mention her writings and actually it's not for quite a long time that she starts it's not for quite a long time until she be, starts to become known as a as a writer um once she's after her death her last two novels um persuasion and north Angrabi, are published with her name on um but i don't think that particularly makes a stir at that time you know it, women are writing it's not that crazy to have a woman novelist so it doesn't cause all that much interest I don't think but her novels are are popular they're read you know they're, I think they're, at that time they're slightly thought of as rather rather the elite rather literary and it's not until a little bit later around 1870 um actually her her nephew James Edward Austen Lee writes a biography it's the first biography it's called a memoir of Jane Austen um, and he's drawing on his and his siblings and his cousins, all of their memories and reminiscences of their aunt Jane. And they um, they depict her as this sort of Victorian ideal woman. They sort of make her very domestic. They, they actually spin this bit of a story about how um, she didn't really mean to write the novels. That was rather an accident. She was really this sort of wonderful domestic figure, kind of angel in the home kind of thing. Um, but the thing that that novel, that that memoir really did do is kind of kickstart a bit more of an interest in her. And from that point, she really, her, her sort of fame and her, uh, the sort of general public appreciation of her works really starts to snowball. And what's so extraordinary is that now, sort of, you know, 200 years after her death, we, um, we, she is the most celebrated British novelist in the English language. Many critics have said that she's sort of second to Shakespeare in, in her skill, her talent. I mean, she's obviously completely different. She writes in a very, very small scale. Her um, her worlds are very, very small. She wrote, she wrote about the sorts of society that she knew. Um, but she's also emerged as a bit of a feminist figure. I mean, she would pass the Beckdale test with flying colours. All of her novels are about women. Um, she always includes women in uh, in her scenes, in her conversations. Um, her worlds are about, they're, they're essentially about the sorts of difficulties that women in her time experienced. And there are, her characters, her heroines are really... Um, people quite often dismiss her, or they have done in the past, for simply writing about women trying to get married. But actually, that device is really interesting in exploring how women were seeking independence, and they had so few ways 
to achieve that in the, the time that she was living in. And marriage was really essentially the only way out for women of a certain class. They weren't allowed to own their own property in most situations. Um, they weren't really allowed careers. So marriage was what you had to do, really. So that's sort of her where she was coming from. And where, I mean, because I know that Jane, I think anyway, she... Did she have several courtships and, and suitors? But of course, she never marries, does she? So she didn't marry. Um, she uh, she had many flirtations, I think, and she certainly um, certainly enjoyed male company. We know that she had at least one proposal, which was rather dramatic. Actually, it was the younger brother of uh, her two best friends, um, and she was staying at their house, and he proposed, and she said yes, and then probably had a sleepless night we think and then in the morning she uh, she told him that she actually couldn't marry him so it was rather awful and she had to leave the house immediately and she was absolutely you know it was incredibly embarrassing but it's so interesting that she actually had that kind of it's probably a crisis moment in her life where she thought do I want to become the wife of a man who I don't love I mean like him he's fine he's the younger brother of my best friend he's actually incredibly rich he has a wonderful house it would be a very nice life do I want to be that and and a mother that's what she would have you know she would have had to have children um or do I want to be a writer do I want to have my freedom and it's really telling I think that whilst her heroines all do end up marrying she herself decided that she didn't want to. Yeah, that's a really interesting point, actually. Um, and I mean, let's talk a little bit about the museum or Jane Austen's house. And um, yeah. it's, do you know, it's somewhere that I've been visiting for years and I, I really love it. And I've grown up in many ways surrounded by Jane Austen because I live just outside of Bath and I went to university in Winchester. So I guess, yeah, Jane Austen has in many ways been a part of um of, of my life been following the, the Jane Austen trail That's it, exactly um but Jane Austen's house where you work is is very different to those sorts of places and I wonder if you could just tell us a little bit about the the house and the museum and, and how it came to be a museum that's dedicated to Jane's life of course I actually love this story I think it's it's amazing um okay so the house itself is fascinating in its own right and it has a long history it's it it um different parts of the building are older than others but some parts date back five six hundred years it was originally built as um as a, a farmhouse then it was used as an inn um and it was sort of expanded and built on so it's a bit of a hodgepodge building in um in the sort of Georgian period when Jane Austen was living there, it was definitely thought of. It, they called it a cottage, and um, I think visitors today are quite often surprised either because it's bigger than they expect, because you turn up thinking a cottage and it's actually a rather lovely house. You'd be very delighted to live there today, um, but it's really not Pemberley. Lots of visitors turn up thinking that um, they have a you know the idea that she was living the kind of lifestyle that she was writing about. And actually, that's really not true. Um, the Austins were always, um, I'm trying to think how to put this, they never had quite enough money. They were, um, they were middle class, but they always had to economise. They had to be stretching their money and making it do go as far as it possibly could. So the house is actually very modest. Um, it's very beautiful. It's set in uh, the village of Chawton in Hampshire, which is 
absolutely beautiful. Um, it's uh, you know a few hundred yards from the church. There's the village street with where their neighbours would have lived, but that's really you know it's very small. There's not much there other than than the house. There is her brother's house up the road. So Edward, who I mentioned earlier, inherited a huge fortune and he had a number of houses, actually. He actually mainly lived in Kent, but he also had a house in Georgian and he had the manor house up the road. So he was much more like the heroes of the novels. Um, Jane Austen, in many ways, is really living the life of Miss Bates and Emma. You know, she's living in in an all-female household. She lived with her mother and her sister and actually with their friend Martha, who was another unmarried woman. They came together and sort of made this rather unconventional all-female household, which is rather wonderful as well. So, um, sorry, to get back to the question. Um, in 1817, Jane Austen died, but her mother and her sister Cassandra carried on living in that house. Her mother died. Eventually, um, Cassandra died in 1845. And at that point, the house actually reverted to the estate. So it, it essentially had been lent to them for their lifetime by their brother Edward. When Cassandra died, the house went back to the estate. Edward was still alive. Um, and the house at that point was split up into three sort of tenements, three kind of flats, essentially. And estate workers could rent um, accommodation there. So and and one room also is used um, as the estate office, sort of for giving out, you know, dealing with rents and tithes and things like that. Um, and for about 100 years, there's this long period where lots of different people are living there. They kind of chop it up quite a bit. They move some bits around, which is very irritating now because we're obviously trying to pull it all back to how it, just how it would have been in the Austens day. Um, but it's not really looked after. It's one of those things, I think, if you have lots of people in a building no one is necessarily responsible for all the upkeep. So it kind of, you know, it's not great shape at that time, actually. And then there's this wonderful, wonderful story. So in 1940, there's a local woman who lives in Alton, which is the town about a mile away from Jordan. Um, and she walks into Jordan and she knows that the house is Jane Austen's house. And she's a big fan of Jane Austen. And she looks at the house, you know, on her walks and she thinks, oh, God, it's such a shame that the house is sort of you know, not in not in great shape and nobody cares about it. Nobody knows or cares that it was Jane Austen's house. So she decides to do something about it. It's 1940, so it's not the best time. You know, there's a war on. It, but she decides to set up the Jane Austen Society to essentially raise money to buy the house and save it for the nation. And because it's 1940, um, they don't have, there are limited means of communication. But essentially what she does is put notices in the newspapers and she does start to, lots of people join the society, they start to raise some money. They don't actually raise enough money to buy the house, which by the mid 40s has actually been put on the market. Lots of um, great estate owners are selling off bits of their estates to try and raise money. Um, so the house has been put on the market. The Jane Austen Society have raised £2,000 and it's on the market for, I think, three. So they don't have enough money. But one of their notices does attract the attention of a man in London. He's a lawyer. Um, he actually lived in Mill Hill in London. He's called Mr. T. Edward Carpenter. And he essentially becomes the museum's sort of fairy godfather. He decides to buy the house outright and set up a museum. 
So, which he does. And it's a rather moving story, actually, because his son had actually just been killed in action in Italy. So he also dedicated the museum to his son. So we're also a war memorial, which is rather wonderful in, in, in lots of ways. Um, so 1949, the museum is open to the public. The Duke of Wellington comes and cuts the ribbon and declares it open. Um, but it's it's quite funny. At that time, there's only one room open to the public because all the tenants are still living in the house. So the drawing room is open. You can come and see that. The tenants all think it's incredibly inconvenient. They don't like, you know, people come and knock on the door and they have to show them around and they think, oh, this is my house. What are you doing? Um, but essentially, over time, Mr. Carpenter, he actually has to buy other houses locally to move the tenants out into. Over time, tenants moved out. More and more rooms are opened up to the public. And and essentially, you know, fast forward 70 years and the museum is, I think, in, in the best condition that it's ever been today. We're obviously still working on it all the time. But what we're trying to do is to really recreate the, the feeling, the atmosphere of what it would have been like in sort of, you know, around sort of 1809 to 1860, in that kind of period when Jane Austen was living there. She was, they were happy. She was busy. She was starting to become successful. It was a really happy household. It was very busy. Um, they had they would have had to do lots of work. So we're kind of sort of trying to capture that rural sense as well mm. to kind of tell the story of what it would have been like to live in the country. It, you know, they had a cow, <laughs> they oh. had chickens. <laughs> you know, they were they were essentially a kind of tiny, tiny rural small holding. Um, but the other thing that's lovely to say about that is that. Um, there are four women living in the house and actually they all club together so that Jane doesn't really have to do the work because they know that she needs the time to write. So Cassandra, who is her, her you know, beloved sister, really steps up and kind of takes charge of managing the household. Her mother does the gardening. She is seen out in the garden planting potatoes, wearing a sort of smock and the um, the nephews and nieces who are all rather grander than them all think this is so embarrassing that their granny is out sort of behaving like a farm <laughs> labourer but she doesn't care you know she's an old-fashioned Georgian woman she doesn't care at all she thinks this is brilliant but Jane has the time and the space to kind of shut herself away and write her novels and that's the first time in her life since she left Steventon that she's really had time to do that. How wonderful what a wonderful story and how it is, how, it? yeah it is and how lovely to hear that her family or her female relatives in particular were so supportive of her and what she was doing. That's really quite touching. Um, so the house, it contains some incredible pieces that were either owned by Jane or connected to her in some way. Uh, one of my favourites of all time is Jane's writing table. I think that's just wonderful. Of course, yeah. Very tangible. <laughs> um, and there's also, of course more um more specifically for the purpose of our podcast there are some of Jane's jewels or jewels that are connected to her in some way um so can we yeah. start with the ring I think there's a there's a ring in the collection perhaps you could tell us a bit about that yeah absolutely and this is one of our um probably one of our most iconic objects I would say perhaps after the writing table um so uh, you're right. There are we we have a number of pieces of jewelry. I think we I think we have all the pieces of jewelry which are known to exist that belong to Jane Austen. She didn't have very much. She wasn't wealthy. She didn't have you know loads of family jewels. But she did have this very small, very plain, simple gold ring with a turquoise stone in it. And 
what's so frustrating is that we know it was hers because there's amazing provenance, but we don't know where she got it from. We don't know whether she was given it, whether she bought it for herself, what she thought of it. I mean, it's 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 a, a tease, you know, it's a <laughs> there are so many theories, so many people have different ideas about this, but we just don't know. But it's very simple, very beautiful. We do know um, that it was probably made between around 1750, 1800, something like that. Um, it was owned by Jane Austen and on her death, it was left to Cassandra. And then brilliantly, um, ever since then, the people who have owned it have kept track of it really well. and They've documented the ownership. So after Cassandra held on to it for a few years, but then when her brother Henry got married, he actually was marrying his second wife, Eleanor Jackson. Cassandra um, gave her the ring as a kind of welcome to the family present. And she gave her a letter along with it that said, you know, this was my sister Jane Austen's ring. And then brilliantly, Eleanor, you know, she passes it on eventually to the next person and she adds a bit to the note that says you know this was given to me by Cassandra and I'm passing it on to you so the ring has this wonderful um series of provenance letters which for somebody in a museum is just like the most exciting thing mm -hmm. to have you really want the provenance um so it stays in the family passed down the female line for about 200 years and then in 2012 the story of the ring gets quite dramatic because it's actually put up for auction at Sotheby's and out of the blue, it's purchased by by Kelly Clarkson, the singer, um, which is just sort of such, a, you know, who saw that coming? Yeah. Um, but she's a big she's a big Jane Austen fan, and and why not? Um, it's bought for she buys it for about one hundred and fifty thousand um, pounds, and at that point, the museum had actually been outbid. We had wanted to buy it at that point, but we couldn't go up against Kelly Clarkson, so we didn't get it. But the UK government did then put an export ban on the ring so that it, it wasn't allowed to leave the country because it is, I mean, in so many ways, even though it's so tiny and in some ways, you know, you could look at it and think, what does that matter? But it's it symbolises so much. It's actually of really sort of national importance in, in lots of ways. Um, so the museum then got another chance to buy the ring and the way an export ban works is you have a certain amount of time. I think you have about you know, five or six months normally to raise the money, you have to um, be able to buy it back from the purchaser at the same price that they bought it. So we had to raise 150 grand for it. Okay. Um, and so the museum ran this public campaign to raise money to buy the ring. And it was actually insanely successful. People came out of the woodwork very, very quickly. Um, and we raised the money in, in a month, I think, including, we were very lucky, but one donor who remains anonymous um gave a hundred thousand pounds for for that purchase wow. so that was really amazing and it's been on display ever since and it is one of those things that people just you know it it helps you to visualize there are certain things that trigger people's imaginations I think and the writing table is definitely one but the ring is one because you look at it and you think you know she wore that on her finger yeah. it's tiny it gives you a sense of she was very petite. It, you know, gives you an idea of her, her little finger. I mean, it, it's just there's something very human about it. I think that's why it's not glitzy. It's not bling in any way. It's very modest, but it just sort of makes her feel a bit more, a bit, a bit more there. I think. Yeah, very much so. And I think, I mean, that's an amazing story. And I'm so, so glad. I mean, that's doesn't that say something as well about how, um, you know, how, what an important piece 
this what an important piece of British history and Jane Austen history this was considered to be the fact that so many people came together to contribute to be able to yeah purchase this ring for the museum it's amazing absolutely but I have to say whenever we run a fundraising campaign we have so much support the Jane Austen community is just extraordinary and it's something that I I didn't realize until I started working here that the love that people feel for Jane Austen all over the world yeah. is just extraordinary. People are so moved by her work. And it's actually, it's something that, um, we've really noticed in the last year, you know, particularly in the lockdown last year, people were going back to Jane Austen. They were finding so much comfort in her work. They were understanding her work in a new way because of um, social distancing. They made, it sort of makes us understand her society so much more. It's basically what she lived in sort of the whole time. <laughs> and and it's really interesting how there's been this real resurgence of love towards Jane Austen in the last year. I mean, it was there already. It was already the hugely there, but I think she's been a real lifeline for a lot of people in the last year. Oh, that's wonderful. That's a lovely way to, I mean, what a legacy as well, actually, for, for Jane to be able to still be having that impact on people you know long after she's she's gone that's lovely yeah um yeah absolutely amazing. so also in the collection there are these two beautiful topaz crosses that I think we know belonged to Jane and to her beloved sister um Cassandra which um can you tell us a bit about these of course yeah yeah I actually um I mean this is very um I don't know if I should say this, but I think I find these much more interesting than the ring in a lot of ways, probably because they tie into the novels so much more. Um, but yes, we have these two very beautiful topaz crosses um, and we know much more about them, which is is probably why I love them more. Um, but they were given to Jane and Cassandra by their brother, Charles. Um, Charles was the youngest of the siblings. Jane was second to youngest and he was below her and she once referred to him in one of her letters as our own particular little brother so you know she's sort of taking advantage of being able to be an older sister lording it over him a little bit but he goes into the navy and he's actually incredibly successful um and in um 1801 he writes home to Jane and Cassandra and Cassandra isn't there which is kind of lucky for us it's always good when Cassandra and Jane are apart because there will be letters between them that tell us the story um, and that's sort of a whole debate for another day, actually. A lot of the letters don't survive, but the ones that do, there are about 160 letters that survive. They are just gold dust um, telling us sort of all sorts of things about what, what they were doing, what Jane Austen was, you know, what she was up to, but what she was thinking about as well. So she wrote to Cassandra to tell her about Charles's letter, basically. Um, and I'm just going to read you a bit, actually, because it sort of says it all. So she says, she's, she's saying um, he has taken some prize money from another ship and he's used it to buy um gold gold um chains and topaz crosses for us and she says of what avail is it to take prizes if he lays out the produce in presents to his sisters he has been buying gold chains and topaz crosses for us he must be well scolded i shall write again by this post to thank and reproach him we shall be unbearably fine and i just love that because she is kind of being mock severe but you know that actually secretly she's really delighted that he's buying her presents I mean who doesn't want their brother buying them presents that's just so you know it's lovely 
but we we know that sort of doubly so because she obviously goes on to write sort of exactly that episode into Mansfield Park where you have Fanny Price receive um, an amber cross from her brother William who is also in the Navy um, and I have my own theory about this which is that Fanny Price is a very difficult character in lots of ways um, and I think that Jane Austen is giving her giving us a sort of way into understanding her better through that little episode with the cross and with the, with her brother. Essentially, she's giving us an opportunity to understand Fanny through her brother, William, to kind of see her through William's eyes. And he, he gets her. He's known her since she was a little girl and he really loves her and understands her. And I sort of think that that episode is one of the occasions in the book when, when I personally like Fanny best, yeah. you know, because, because you sort of see that her brother, who is, you know, great, her brother's brilliant. He doesn't have any issues. And he really loves her and and sort of wants to protect her and reward her and give her presents. And and I, you know, I sort of find it quite moving in a way that that is exactly the relationship that Jane sort of had with Charles. So yeah, there's sort of there's and there's something obviously incredibly satisfying as well about you all, we always love being able to see life picked up and and put into the novels. And there aren't very many opportunities for that with Austin she doesn't do it very much so this is kind of the most you know sort of tangible place where we see that I think yeah yeah and wonderful and and like you said wonderful also to have that letter in which she she talks about how they came to own these crosses and just wonderful to have that um that story behind it and and so revealing in terms of her relationships with um, with her siblings as well, which mm. which I think is really lovely and, and very touching that she was obviously so so close to her family and her siblings. I think that's yeah, that's very moving, um, yeah, and lovely. So perhaps we could also talk about. I think there's also a, a really beautiful portrait miniature, isn't there in the in the collection? Uh, and a, 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 yeah, sorry, and have- a nice story with this. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> yes, there is, there is. Um, we have a lot of portrait miniatures actually. We the Regency, um, you know, portraits were miniature portraits were really popular. Um, but we're really lucky. We have this one which is incredibly beautiful, and I just thought it would be really um a nice one to talk about on this podcast because it doesn't get much of an airing. It's not of Jane Austen, so you know, lots of people who come to the museum they really just want to see the Jane Austen stuff. But this is a, actually a portrait miniature of her aunt, who was called Philadelphia Hancock. Um, she was her brother, her her father's sister, and it's a beautiful, beautiful piece. I mean, actually, whenever I do get it out to show people, they ooh and are over it so much because it's stunning. It's a tiny, tiny portrait miniature. It was actually worn originally as a ring, so you can imagine how small it. I mean, it would be quite a big ring, but it, it's tiny. And it's set in a border of diamonds, so it's quite bling. Um, so I thought that you would you would like it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and it's also it's also a really really good miniature. It was painted by um, John Smart, who was one of the top portrait miniaturists of of his day. Um, and it shows this very beautiful young woman. And even if you don't know who she is, you you know she could easily be in one of Jane Austen's novels. She could easily be an Austen heroine. She's very sort of typical of the time. She's very, she's just just a lovely looking woman. Um, but I also just think Philadelphia Hancock's story is so extraordinary. And um, 
and sort of it's really worth knowing it's this sort of side of the family which many people don't know about because it's not Jane Austen herself but um Jane Austen's father and his two sisters were orphaned when they were sort of fairly young and they were actually split up amongst the family so whilst George Jane Austen's father did quite well he was very bright he ended up you know, going to university and doing very well for himself. Um, his sister, Philadelphia, wasn't so lucky. Um, she was actually apprenticed to a milliner in Covent Garden, which wasn't very respectable at the time. And she got out as soon as she could and she went to India, which is incredibly sort of, I mean, it's just sort of an extraordinary thing for her sort of to have got herself to do. You know, it's quite a feat. And essentially she went out to find a husband. It was quite it was kind of the done thing. If you didn't have, really have a dowry, if you didn't have much money behind you, or you didn't have the connections to find a good husband in England, going to India was a pretty surefire way of getting a, a good husband. And, you know, she she went out in um, 1752. Within six months, she got married to a man called Saul Tyso Hancock, who was a surgeon. Um, she her life story is actually extraordinary and we could do a whole separate podcast about this um but she ends up having uh, one child eliza um who it is thought may have been the love child of warren hastings who was the governor of india so that whole story could go down a whole different path um but the the ring um is uh commissioned by smart when he's in india by um hancock her husband and after um, Philadelphia's death, after oh, sorry, after um, Hancock's death, he leaves it to his daughter Eliza, and he asks her to always keep it in memory of her mother, which I think is, I don't know, is very moving in lots of ways because he would have known that there were all these rumours circulating that she'd had an affair, and, and he's sort of saying in his will, you know, in his last thing that he can say to his daughter that he wants her to remember her mother, her mother's virtue through the ring. So I think I find it a really sort of very, you know, wonderful, wonderful piece. But then there's this whole other um, side to it, which is, I mentioned earlier, um, uh, Jane Austen's teenage writings. Um, and Jane Austen was also inspired by her aunt. And one of the teenage writings has a character who does exactly what her aunt Philadelphia did. So it's a, it's a story called Kitty or the Bower. And there's um, a character in it. And again, I just can read you just a tiny, tiny sentence. But it's a character who goes out to India. The eldest daughter, she says, um, went out to India. Her personal attractions had gained her a husband as soon as she had arrived at Bengal. And she had been married nearly a 12 months, splendidly yet unhappily married, united to a man of double her own age, whose disposition was not amiable, whose manners were unpleasing, though his character was respectable. And it's really fascinating, again, that you see her, you know, little young Jane Austen at this age, kind of listening and watching and seeing what's going on in the family and then transcribing it into her stories. So I think that's, you know, a really lovely link that brings it back to Jane. There it is. That's lovely. Um, now, we've talked about some of these lovely, wonderful pieces that are in the collection at the museum. And I don't know if you're going to be able to answer this, but I'm going to ask you anyway. <laughs> do you yeah, have primary. yeah? Do you have a favourite piece in the collection? Oh, that's so difficult, isn't it? Picking <laughs> um, <laughs> you on the I spot. Don't, yeah, I don't think I have one. Okay. Um, but I do love the writing table. I mean, it's hard not to. It's 
it's the one piece that everyone wants to see. It's the most iconic piece in the museum. Um, and I love it because it's so strange. It's this tiny table. You know, it's just sort of a foot across or two feet across or something. It's it's not what you would choose to write at. Um, it's not a desk. No. <laughs> it's just a, it's just kind of like a little occasional table. Um, and we know that she would write at this table. Um, she'd place it by the window for light because her eyesight wasn't brilliant. She wore glasses, so she would put her table by the window, um, and she would write on quite small pieces of paper, which um, would fit nicely on the table. Um, and we are veer, I'm gonna veer into family folklore now because we don't know if this is absolutely true, but there is a lovely family story about how um, she would write quite secretly and she would kind of hide her manuscripts under a book or a letter if somebody else came in. And there's this story about how one of the um, doors leading into the dining room where she would work had squeaky hinges <laughs> and she wouldn't let them be oiled because she wanted the squeak she wanted to hear if someone was coming because that would give her time to just kind of you know shove everything under a book and <laughs> look like she wasn't doing anything I don't know if I completely believe it because I don't think she really I mean she was very proud of her writing but she also kept it she did keep it secret so you know uh, the other thing is that the the table is so small you can imagine writing a first draft at it but what I really find difficult to understand is if you're going through and editing and revising a whole novel how do you do that she's got all these sheets of paper so she must have been incredibly neat I mean we yeah. know she was incredibly neat her handwriting her her needlework she was an incredibly neat dexterous person and she worked in a very small scale on everything um but yeah the table is just rather a feat to think how she managed that with this tiny tiny table the other thing that I love about the table actually is the thing about sitting it by the window I love the dining room window in the house maybe that's my favorite object oh. it's a big window and it overlooks the village street and in um in the Austin's time, Chawton was actually quite busy as a village. The, the main road through the village today doesn't go anywhere. It just goes through Chawton. You know, you wouldn't drive through Chawton if you didn't have to go on the ring road. But in the Austin's day, the road through Chawton was actually, it was, it's called the Winchester Road, and it was the main road between Winchester and London. And the coaches would go down there, people on horseback, people in carriages. It was quite busy. There was quite a lot of traffic. And um, there are some wonderful quotes in the letters where Jane Austen is basically sitting by the window, looking out and kind of just sort of spying on people, just sort of taking <laughs> in what the neighbours are doing, looking at who's going past. And she writes to Cassandra and she sort of tells her what's going on in the village. And I love that because it's, to me, it's kind of like, um, Chawton is kind of like Highbury, I think. It's set, you know, Jane Austen's life in Chawton is very much in this tiny village. Everyone knows everyone. Everyone knows what everyone else is doing and they all meet every day. There are no secrets. And I just love that idea that she's kind of sitting quietly at her window, looking out and just sort of observing everyone. And then she writes to Cassandra and she says, oh, so-and-so went to, on the coach, so-and-so walked past. <laughs> and then there's this other letter, which is somebody looking in. Somebody writes a letter saying, oh, I saw the Chawton party looking very comfortable at breakfast. So they've oh. gone past in the coach and they've looked in and seen them having breakfast in the dining room, which I just, I love that there's this kind of, that it's actually 
this sort of two two way communication yeah. through the window. It's so funny. Oh, that's wonderful. And do you have a favorite novel? Oh, that changes all the time too. Um, <laughs> I, think, I think it's Persuasion. I'm actually a Bath girl as well. And ah. Persuasion was sort of my first, you know, the one that made me sort of really go, oh, I know what she's talking about. I know Milsom Street. I know, you know, the pump rooms, all of that. Yeah. So I think that helped me into Jane Austen's world when I was quite young. Oh, okay. Okay. And now I can see that. I think I remember doing Persuasion for when I was at university, but um, Sense and Sensibility will always be my favourite. Uh, well, they're all wonderful. It's hard because yeah. somebody asks you what your favourite is and then you immediately regret what you said and you think, no, no, it's actually, <laughs> actually Persuasion, it's actually Pride and Prejudice. Yeah, it's all <laughs> oh, well, Sophie, it has been absolutely brilliant talking to you. Thank you so much. Just very finally, for those people or for those listeners who would like to find out more about the museum where's the best place to look and and how can they connect with the museum yeah absolutely well there are there are lots of ways but we are um obviously the museum is closed at the moment and hopefully we'll be able to reopen fairly soon but in the meantime we're um we're online so <laughs> visit the website we're at janeaustins.house um and also you know all the normal social media channels and actually i would like to put a little um shout out really to our virtual tour which is on the website you can find it very easily it's it's under a tab called jane austen's house from home where there are lots of virtual resources we've got some really wonderful online exhibitions and things like that but we've got a virtual tour on there which is really a great way of exploring the house whilst we're closed or if you're not local you know anyone can you can go on at any time and it's it's a bit like street view you can just sort of walk through and zoom in on things and pan around and, and sort of imagine that you're there and we made it last summer in august so it is always the height of summer in the virtual tour which is lovely that's when Shorten's at its best <laughs> so yeah I think that is worth worth a little look that's fantastic and we can post a link to that as well on the episode when we upload it as well so that people can follow that so that's amazing thank you so much oh thank you this has been really fun thank you Nicola oh no pleasure it's been really lovely to chat to you and to find out more about the wonderful museum and some of the pieces so yeah thank you so much for your time it's been amazing thanks so much for listening to today's episode and we will be uploading images of some of the pieces we've talked about onto our social media platforms at History Gems Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. If you enjoyed this podcast, please don't forget to press subscribe, leave us a rating and a review. Join us next time for the next episode of History Gems.